But Noah's drunkenness also teaches us lessons on the family level. Noah's sin creates, secondly, serious family division. Let's look for a moment at, at, at Ham. Ham was greatly blessed. Genesis 9.1 says, God blessed Noah and his sons. Ham, along with Noah, entered the ark. Ham heard the call of God through Noah, and he turned away from the wickedness of the world. God had also established a covenant with Ham. Genesis 9.9, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Now, verse 24 of our chapter, interestingly, describes Ham as the younger son. I never knew that until this week. I always thought Shem, Ham, Japheth. But Ham was the youngest. The youngest son saw the nakedness of his father, verse 22 says, and told his two brethren without. Now some commentaries suggest that there's a darker sin here than is explicitly stated because verse 24 says that Noah became angry when he found out what his younger or youngest son had done to him. And so some have suggested that something foul was done to Noah by his son, but there's really no evidence for that. What Ham did on the surface of our text was bad enough. He began, you see, with a sin of omission. He saw his father in this drunken and exposed state and he didn't turn away. He felt no sense of shame for gazing on his naked father. There was not that fear of God we heard about this afternoon before his eyes. In fact, he was a bit amused. He mocked a bit. He snickered. He laughed at his father. He played the fool of Proverbs 14, verse 9, which says, Fools make a mock of sin. And then he called his brothers. Shem, Japheth, come over here. Look at our dad. This is, this is the preacher of righteousness. Look, look at him. Come and see him. What are you doing, Ham? This is your father. You're mocking your father, Ham? Who took you into the ark? Who saved your life? Who taught you the ways of God? The Father whose righteousness had provided a means for deliverance and salvation. The Father to whom you owe everything. You'd be dead without your father, him. You see, his behavior is contemptible. His behavior is actually worse than his father's. Noah made a mistake and sinned. We all make mistakes and sin. But Ham gloated over his father's mistake and sin. He delighted in it. He made fun of it. He publicized it. Can I say a word to you teenagers tonight? Maybe you've been tempted at times in your lives to criticize your dad or your mom to someone else. But don't do it. Don't make fun of your parents. Don't call them names like old man or things like that or whatever criticism you might convey about their behavior. Cover their sins. Don't tell them to your brothers, your sisters, your friends at school. Don't publicize them. Show them respect and honor. Remembering your own sins and shortcomings. 
But I don't only speak to you teenagers, I speak to all of us because we are all prone to be guilty of the sin of Ham. When someone's fault or sin is uncovered before us, someone's sinful side is exposed. Someone does something foolish, inconsistent. Do you pass it on to someone else? Do you show their shame, make it visible, advertise it? Do you say, you know what so-and-so did? Now there are times, of course, in proper settings, we cannot be naive that we need to speak about the sin of a member of our family to decide what to do. Or even someone else's sin in church life to decide how to handle it. But that's different, you see. Then we speak about it with, with tears and sorrow. And we speak about what we can do in love to help the person. That's different than talking about sin as a gossip channel and spreading sin unnecessarily. Often it begins this way. Well, I really probably shouldn't be telling you this, but please, I, let, let me just share it with you in confidence. But did you know that so-and-so has this problem? Gutter journalism. That's what sells newspapers. That's what spreads gossip. This past week, did you notice in the newspaper a 27-year-old murder case has been cracked? And it's a sordid case. You probably noticed that there's six or more people involved, I think. I read the first two paragraphs and I had enough. I set it aside. Then I noticed there's a whole other page and I turned the page. I don't want to read all that junk. Next night, again, another couple pages. And last night, again, more. Why so much about a murder 27 years ago? Because the natural man likes these kinds of things. Gossip. It's not just gossip between ourselves. It's all over the media, isn't it? TV, chat rooms, instant messaging, through iPods, through computers. All the venues of modern conversation reveal that sadly, so many people like filthy, ugly, sinful sides of others being shown because somehow it makes us feel we're a whit better. That's our depravity that we heard about this morning. Boys and girls, perhaps your parents have said to you often, and maybe you think it's a little weird, and they do, but they've said to you often, when you point one finger at someone else, you're pointing three at yourself. It's often true. I remember my mother telling me when I was a boy, maybe 12 or 13 years old, she said, if you watch when people criticize other people in life, if you watch the things they criticize about, what you'll find, strangely, is that often the very thing they criticize someone else about is the very kind of thing that they are known for doing themselves. Let's not be quick to condemn him without realizing that we too often are publicizers of the shame and sorrow of other people. But let's take a quick look now at Shem and Japheth as well. How radically different is their behavior? They don't share the joke. They don't commit the same sin. They're profoundly disturbed by Ham's reaction. And they excel in holiness. You notice in the Bible... How Ham's sin is, is, is quickly told and then passed on. And now suddenly the camera goes slowly over the wonderful obedience and respect of Shem 
and Japheth. Almost a frame-by-frame description. Saying this is how we should behave toward our neighbor, toward our parent, toward our friends. Look at verse 23. Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And then again, and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. These boys loved their dad. They respected him. They honored him. They felt bonded with him. They were sorry to hear of his fall. They knew it wasn't typical. They knew it wasn't their father at his truest truest and at his best. They had absolutely no interest in seeing his shame. They didn't even want to see it. They didn't want, to, didn't want the picture written on their minds. This is godly, loving behavior. An example for us. Oh, may God keep us from sick and nosy and prying curiosity. May he make us more aware of our own weaknesses. The things that, that tend to live in our hearts and minds that if publicized, could not bear examination. Let us cover up those things as much as we can. Put the barrier of the garment over them. Let us walk backwards towards the folly of our fellow men. Let us turn away our faces from it and show respect. But Shem and Japheth did more than turn away. They actually covered their father's nakedness. They took positive action. You see, it's not enough simply not to spread malicious gossip. We should try to strangle it and prevent it and say, God, helping me. It will not reach anyone else. It ends with me. That's what Shem and Japheth did. They knew what it meant to put the best possible construction upon an unfortunate situation. That's how we should treat other people. Not with a cynical assessment, but with an optimistic assessment. Giving them the benefit of the doubt. Covering them over. That's what God did with Adam and Eve in paradise, didn't he? The Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. He came to cover their nakedness. To take it away. Take away their shame. Shem and Japheth are doing here to their father what God did to Adam and Eve. They're showing God-like behavior. That's what we should do. In a very literal way. Also with nakedness in our society, which has become such a problem. Don't even look at it. Turn away. Walk backwards. That's what we must do, dear young people, when you're confronted with a shameful nakedness of immodesty. Pornography. Among your friends. If a friend wants to share a magazine with you, turn away. Say, I'm not into that. It's not good for you. Just be honest. And don't press that button on your computer that will lead you to immodestly clad men and women and to pornography on the internet. Nakedness in the confines of marriage is a beautiful thing. But don't sin against God and your own conscience by indulging in it sinfully outside of the beautiful boundaries of marriage. Don't pack your mind with mental pictures of naked men and women that will haunt you and convict you for the rest of your life. Don't be like Ham. Be like Shem and Japheth. With God's help, turn away from temptation. Noah's sin not only promoted personal shame and family division, it also led 
to international repercussions. These three sons are the heads of three great branches of humanity. We're going to see that next time, God willing, from chapter 3, the table of the nations. Listen how they're introduced already in our chapter, verse 19. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. You see, this domestic incident explains what's going to happen to all the nations that descend from these men. Shem is the father of the Semitic people. The Semitics come from the name Shem. Ham is the ancestor of the Eastern and African peoples. Japheth is the ancestor of the Indo-Europeans. And so all mankind flows out of these three sons. And Noah goes on here to make a prophecy. He's not just angry with Ham and so puts a curse upon Canaan. He's making a solemn prophecy of all the nations of the earth. Like Isaac would do in Genesis 29 and Jacob in Genesis 49. So Noah here outlines the destinies, only in his case, of all the peoples. Let's look at them very briefly. Verse 25. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Now we don't know why Noah cursed Canaan and not him. Could it be that because Canaan was the youngest son of Ham, and Ham was the youngest son of Noah, that God was giving what they call a mirror punishment, that you get the punishment back on your children, what you have done? No, that could be. Could also be God's sovereignty. But we know that only one son of Ham, not all four, is cursed. There's no support here for the absurd perversion taught in some circles centuries ago, well, even until the last generation, in, in a few circles, that all the descendants of Ham are in some way cursed by God. And since they're cursed by God, still today, we are justified in having uh, black slaves or servants. Well, that's a bizarre view. Ham had a number of sons. Only one is cursed. Canaan. The name Canaan comes from the Hebrew word that means humiliated or enslaved. It's a simple fact of history that the nation of Canaan was always subject to its brothers, to Egypt and to Mesopotamia. It's a fact that they were degraded, immoral, and brutal people as a whole. And they disappeared from history and were obliterated altogether. So this prophecy has been long fulfilled and buried and has no bearing today on any people on the face of the earth. But then Noah goes on to say in verse 26, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. The name Shem means simply a name. That is, there's a name in this verse, which is used only of this brother. It's the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the Jehovah God, the Yahweh, the faithful covenant keeper. Jehovah is the God of Shem. This is really a prophecy. A prophecy by Noah that the Lord God is going to enter into covenant with Shem and his descendants. That God will have a special relationship 
with Shem. Is going to be their God. You see, embedded in this prophecy is the call of Abraham and the call of, and formation of the nation of Israel. And you can imagine what an encouragement this must have been for the people of Israel, especially in their early history. Remember, Moses is writing this book. He's writing it for the people of Israel as they're traveling from the land of Egypt. And they hope that somehow they'll be able to overcome the mighty nations of Canaan. And Canaan will be their promised land. And so Noah says here, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Imagine if you were in that great multitude. And Canaan looked so strong. In, in the days of early Israel, he said, we can't go in. We can't go in and take the land. Ah, but here's the promise. We are traveling to Canaan. And already our great father Noah said, Canaan shall be our servant. Canaan shall bow down before us. Ultimately, all Jewish history is implied here. The Lord Jesus Christ is included here. He's the descendant of Shem. He's the Lord of Shem. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. And yet Shem's family won't be the predominant racial grouping in the world. They won't run the empires. They won't have the armies or the power. And yet God said, in a very special way, in an intimate relationship, He will bring salvation to Shem. Now the third brother is Japheth. Verse 27. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Canaan means enslaved, remember? Shem means name. Japheth means to enlarge. Noah prophesied that Japheth will enlarge her territory. Japheth is going to spread out around the world. Japheth is going to be a numerous and a mighty and influential people. And that prophecy is proven true. Probably everyone, every one of us in this building today, or just about every one of us, are, are Japhethites. And for the last 2,500 years, it is the Indo-Europeans who have been dominant in the world. Since the time of Greece, the descendants of Japheth have politically and culturally triumphed and have colonized a new world which has spread its influence out over the earth. And so all three of these prophecies have been fulfilled. Canaan was humiliated, degraded, destroyed. God sends salvation through Shem, through the Messiah, through the Jewish people. And the nations of Japheth spread out and colonized and influenced the whole world. But then Noah says one more thing, a very mysterious thing. He says, and Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth is going to come under Shem's shelter somehow and share Shem's inheritance somehow. 
The Jewish people of the Old Testament must have puzzled about this verse. All throughout the Old Testament. What does that mean? Shepha shall dwell in the tents of Shem. But of course, we can understand it. We're going to see next time in more detail from Genesis 10, verse 2, that one of the descendants of Japheth is Javan. And Javan is, is the father of the Greek peoples. The Ionians took their name from Javan. And the very New Testament is written in the language of one of the tribes of Japheth, you see. One of the descendants of Japheth. The Old Testament is written in the language of the descendants of Shem. But Japheth is going to be included in the New Testament era. Japheth is going to come in the tents of Shem. In other words, the Savior, when He comes, will not just be for the Jewish people, though initially it may be so. But on the great day of Pentecost, the middle wall of partition will be broken down. And the gospel will go to all the nations. And Japheth will come. Japheth will be invited to come into the tents of Shem. Here is the calling of the Gentiles. Here is the validation, the solid foundational prophecy way back in Genesis 9 for the task of Christian missions. In this prophecy lies the mandate to bring the gospel to all the peoples in our continent and beyond into the world. If you're a believer today, you see, your conversion and mine lies embedded in this prophecy as sons and daughters of Japheth. We've been brought by grace into the tents of Shem. And that's exactly what we're doing tonight. We're using a Jewish Bible. A Jewish Old Testament I'm preaching from. Written in Hebrew. Written by the Shemites. But we've been brought into it. We Japhethites. And so from the other side of the world. Think about that. The other side of the world. We're reading a Jewish book written in Hebrew. Which is our book. We've been following a Jewish religion. We worship a Jewish Savior. We use Jewish religious terms. We sing from a Jewish book of praise. Oh, what a wonderful message. This family incident, this sordid, tragic, shameful family incident has brought about yet wonderful prophecies and wonderful fruits. Grace has come out of sin. Where grace, where evil has abounded, grace has much more abounded. And you and I today have come into the tents of Shem. Now, of course, Noah is painting in broad strokes here. He's not saying that this is all true of every individual in these groupings. We know that there was a Canaanitish woman who cried for a crumb and she was saved. We know that there was a Rahab, a member of that despised, degraded Canaanite people, doomed to destruction. She believed God's promise. She was saved. We also know that there were Pharisees pure-blooded Shemites for hundreds of generations, but they had no share in the kingdom, no faith in the Savior. The important thing tonight is not our background. The important thing is not whether we're a Japhethite or a Shemite. The important thing is whosoever believes in Him, the Lord Jesus, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The important question tonight is, have you come to live in the tents of Shem? Have you come to find your life in the things of God? Have you been born again? Do you have a new heart? Do you live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent before Him?
Well, let me close tonight by giving you five quick applications, practical lessons we can learn from the history before us. All around the theme of the word, remember. Number one, remember to keep your heart in the fear of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get caught off guard. Understand from this sad history that you must go forward only in Jesus and only in the strength of the Lord our God. Without the Savior, you will perish. You need him every day. Fly to him every day. End in Jesus every day. Get your strength from him. Look to him. Number two, remember that Satan hates the un, hates the godly. Hates the godly. Noah walked with God and Satan made him a fine target. Satan tempted him and overcame him. He's a master at using strategy, which is not suspected. He trips us up when we least expect it. We've got deceitful hearts. We can fall easily. Remember, Satan hates you, dear believer. Flee, flee from his least device. Three, remember that sin has terrible consequences. The fall of Noah had sad consequences for himself, and for his family, and even international repercussions. His fall must teach us to fear sin more than any enemy. Sin is the plague of plagues, as the Puritan Ralph Venning put it. Hate sin. Run from sin. Four, remember to repent of any known sin and rise again. There's always a way back with God. Perhaps you've fallen. Perhaps, perhaps you've fallen a few times in drinking too much. Or perhaps you've fallen in, in, in pressing that pornography button. Or perhaps you've fallen in a host of other ways. Repent. Return. Forsake your sin. A just man falls six times but rises again. Ask God for grace to do that. And five, remember to appreciate the gospel. It's pure grace that God has brought us into the tents of Shem. It's pure grace that God has given us the Bible and so many thousands of good books that we can read to feed our soul. God has blessed us in the islands of the Gentiles. God has done a great mission work among us and in our hearts. We who were strangers and aliens are now fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Every one of us who is a true believer. So what a mercy it is. What a mercy it is to be a recipient of the gospel. To have the gospel. To come to church. Oh, are you valuing the means of grace? Are you valuing the tense of Shem? Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.